My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... But I really want to learn. So... Every week on this show, a classical music expert will give me a piece of classical music they think I should know, and then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the Classical Classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me all the way from New York City is composer Missy Mazzoli. Missy is a Brooklyn-based composer uh, whose work has been performed by the likes of the Kronos Quartet, pianist Emmanuel Axe, and the New York City Opera, just to name a few. She's currently composer-in-residence with the Opera Philadelphia, uh, the Gotham Chamber Opera and Music Theater Group. She is part of the composition faculty at Manus College of Music. She's currently working on Breaking the Waves, a chamber opera based on Lars von Trier's 1996 film, which was commissioned by the Opera Philadelphia. I keep saying the Opera Philadelphia. It's just Opera Philadelphia. Uh, Breaking the Waves will premiere in 2016. Uh, She has her very own ensemble, Victoire. They tour around the country and the world. Missy, thanks so much for being with us today. It's good to meet you. Thanks for having me. So what are you going to be teaching me about today? I am hopefully going to be teaching you a little bit about the uh, future of classical music from the perspective of a young-ish composer. <laughs> okay, awesome. This, as long this as that's is... not too pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is very exciting. Um, and uh, yeah, you're kind of you're kind of in the thick of everything that's going on right now in classical music. So you're certainly, you know, sort of a in a good position to see what's about to happen. Yeah, well, I mean, it's exciting because things are in such a rapid state of change and flux, and it's really actually a very exciting time to be a composer in this field. And so, truthfully, who knows what's going to happen? (laughs) I, But I do actually have a lot of optimism, given the way that things are going, particularly in the field of opera. I mean, it's sort of a crazy idea that, you know, in, in this time of sort of economic uncertainty, composers are gravitating towards the most expensive, elaborate art form that exists. But there's so much really important, vital, exciting, thrilling opera being written right now. Mm. Which is great. And I find myself sort of in the middle of that through my residency at Opera Philadelphia and through my work with the producer Beth Morrison, who yeah. um, is a great inspiration and sort of, a, yeah, just a muse for so many composers. <laughs> <laughs> this is cool. I'm glad we're going to talk about opera because I actually went to my first opera last week and uh, it was really cool. I, it was so much more, and I don't mean for this to sound so negative but i i was i found it much more engaging than i thought it was going to be like mm-hmm. the, which opera uh otello okay yeah, yeah yeah and it it was like through the first two acts especially i was just really wrapped up in what was going on it was so neat and there were actually tons of young people at mm-hmm. the the opera as well which i thought was really cool just just to see young people out enjoying like something that's sort of a very old school art form. That's mm-hmm. and that's actually a question that I th- I thought w- while you were talking about this, 
I think that a lot of people, including myself before I started doing the show, think about classical music as kind of like uh, an art form where you dredge up old stuff and then you make it new with, you know, new performers and new ensembles and, and things mm-hmm. like that. But well, <laughs> the, this whole idea of classical music as being the music of dead people, specifically dead white men, <laughs> right. um, is a really modern idea. I mean, classical music throughout most of its life and throughout most of history was this vital, living, breathing art form. And audiences clamored to see the newest symphony by Beethoven or Mozart, and they, they had no interest in music that wasn't new. And it's really just in the 20th century or, you know, late 19th century that um, we sort of fetishize these older composers and put them on this pedestal and at the exclusion of a lot of new work. Yeah. You know, and then music, I think music got really thorny. You know, at post-war, you had a lot of composers who just completely, you know, not that they rejected the idea of an audience, but they really went deep into some very extreme ideas. And it had the effect of alienating a lot of people because it's not... Um, familiar music to them. So, you know, mm-hmm. Schoenberg and a lot of people working in the beginning of the 20th century through most of the 20th century were not writing the most accessible music. But I think now people still have sort of very old-fashioned idea, fashioned ideas about classical music where they think that, you know, like your experience with the opera, you were surprised that it was so engaging. Right. And really, you know, opera right now, what directors are doing and what set designers and video artists are doing in opera is just so tremendously cutting edge mm-hmm. that, it really is a cutting-edge art form again. Yeah. So um, maybe we could start with um, the piece, a piece that I wrote called Still Life with Avalanche. Um, and this is a piece that I composed for the Chicago-based group 8th Blackbird. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll, I mean, their, their traditional instrumentation is, you know, flute, clarinet, violin, cello, piano, percussion, which is sort of the become a kind of a standard group in 20th century contemporary music, 20th and 21st century contemporary music. But um, you'll hear from the beginning of this piece that I that I added uh, some unexpected instruments, which I'm not going to give away, but to sort of, you know, make the, the ensemble sort of new for my in my mind as a creator. Okay. All right. Let's give it a listen. It sounds like accordion? No. Maybe harmonica? Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Woohoo! Nice. <laughs> For the most part, the piece is the, that standard instrumentation of that ensemble. So, you know, flute, clarinet, violin, cello, piano, and percussion. Um, but I added three harmonicas to the ensemble. So the flute player, violin player, and percussionist all also blow into harmonicas. And it was a really simple way for me to sort of enhance that ensemble and to just give it a special sort of weird edge. And this just added this really strange sound. I just love harmonicas. <laughs> and they're not doing anything crazy with them. They're just blowing in and out of them. And, um, and, and they always have this sort of vaguely out-of-tune quality. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a sound that everybody knows. Like most people in America at least, have like picked up a harmonica and blown into it at some point in their life. So it's like they, that sound is yeah. not mysterious to them. And it's a really easy sound mm-hmm. to make. You don't have to be a musician to make that noise. Mm-hmm. So I love the idea of hearing that layer of these harmonic people just blowing into these harmonicas in the midst of all this virtuosic playing around it. 
Yeah. And that's sort of, it's something I explore in a lot of my work is that sort of juxtaposition of the really simple, sort of almost amateurish, and with the really virtuosic sounds. That's awesome. Wow. I love this. <laughs> Thanks. It's a very cool sound. Is that sort of exploration of like new kinds of sounds um is that part of what's going on now Mm -hmm. or is that part of where sort of things are going i think it's been a part of contemporary classical music for a while i mean i'm just thinking that composer that popped into my head is mauricio cagle who um an argentinian composer who is famous for having people like saw pieces of wood during his his pieces (laughs) and play banjo and it's just like he was really just experimental in that way. So I think it's always a part of uh, what a lot of composers are doing. And certainly today, there's just so much music around. I mean, I just can just think on my block in Brooklyn, there's probably a hundred musicians who are DJs and making electronic music um, and dealing with samples and drones. And so all that stuff is around me, and I feel like it's become part of my palette. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's true for a lot of composers. Man, to be surrounded by that many, like that much talent, that many musicians, that is pretty cool. So, where where should we go from here? I know you had some other pieces that you wanted to play. Sure. Well, I thought just in the in the name of strange sounds and interesting in, instrumental combinations, maybe we'd, I'd play a track from my ensemble Victoire's first CD, Cathedral City. Mm-hmm. I can just tell you a little bit about the group. I mean, Victoire is a group that I started about six years ago with the idea that I wanted to be performing more. I wanted to sort of build a collective of performers around me that I could constantly have access to, who I could try things out with, yeah. sort of in the in the manner of a band. And I also, I wanted to, my idea is that I wanted to put out albums and I wanted to go on tour and I wanted to do all these things that bands do, but composers don't usually do. Right. <laughs> so um, Victoire really is a combination of all these different musical worlds. So there's some classical, quote unquote, classical instruments in it. So there's violin, clarinet, double bass, but there's also uh, three singers and there's two keyboardists. I play keyboards and I have a friend who plays keyboards. And we also do a lot of sampling, electronics. Uh, and production for the band as well. So most of our pieces, you know, have this sort of electronic layer, they have a synthesizer layer, and then they have all this sort of classical influence on top of that. Um, And I think the track that we've queued up is called A Door Into the Dark, which is the first track off of our first album. Okay.
listening to this. This is so good. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I really dig it. Thanks. Yeah. So when when you tour, like, I mean, is it like the eight of you on stage? Mm-hmm. Do you go out to clubs and play, or like, what kind of venues? Yeah, I mean, we've played in just the biggest variety of venues that you could ever imagine. I mean, my, our first gig was in my living room, and then um, last spring we played Carnegie Hall. So the, <laughs> the and everywhere in between, we've played we played in an abandoned salt mine in Essen, Germany. Wow. Um, we played in this crazy warehouse in Berlin once. Because of the nature of the group and the fact that it's sort of bridging the sort of classical and pop world, I mean, we find ourselves on festivals with like big rock bands, but also in really experimental classical festivals, um, playing at universities. So it's just sort of kind of everywhere. And that that was really my goal in starting the group, was that it would be something that could exist anywhere and would be flexible. It's got so much going on in it. I can totally see this fitting into, like, you know, clubs that I go to here in Houston or in a concert Mm hall. Well, I was I was also going to ask you, you know, when you guys are out playing different kinds of venue, what's the energy like in in the crowd? What what kind what are you seeing in the crowds? You know, it really varies. And usually we're pleasantly surprised. I mean, when we go into these places, um, you know, where we're opening for like an indie rock band and we get up and there's some, a lot of our tracks don't have voice on them. So, you know, we'll get up and it'll be like a violin solo (laughs) and it's not what people are expecting, but usually people are really responsive to it and they're very open to it. And that was also sort of my goal in starting the group was I found that if I told people I was a composer, there was immediately this wall they would put up between us. And they're like, I don't really kind of see their brain working. And they were thinking, I don't really understand what you do. I thought composers were dead. (laughs) You know, there's just no context for us. There's aren't that many of there aren't that many people who self-identify as composers. But if you say I'm in a band, everyone's like, oh, I get that, yeah. And the the relationship between you is immediately understood. That it's understood that I'm going to get up in front of you and play music that I wrote. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And so people in that context are really often much more open to strange ideas. Whereas if you say I wrote this really experimental oratorio with like all these extended techniques on the violin. People are just like, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I was going to ask you, as as you were sort of talking about Victoire, I was um, noticing when I was reading on your website (laughs) that you, like, it's constantly referred to as a band. Uh, Yeah. Because I immediately was like, ooh, what's this band I haven't heard of before? Right. Like, I need to go find out about them. (laughs) it's, It's interesting. It's like all these sort of distinctions you know, between genre or labels, you know, it's it's like I have to sort of step outside of myself and to think about them. Mm-hmm. So meaning that like when I'm sitting down and writing music or when I'm experiencing music or listening to music, none of that stuff is in my mind. Like whether this is a band or an ensemble, I kind of use the two interchangeably because yeah. we have a toe in the classical world of ensembles and a toe in the world of traveling bands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the same thing with, you know, these um, people who kind of made it big in in bands like Richard Reed Perry from Arcade Fire or Bryce Desner from The National who are sort of now writing orchestral music or music for classical instruments. That to me feels like the most natural thing in the world, you know, because mm-hmm. they have that experience. They have that musical brain that works in that in that way as a composer. So the fact that they're doing that is not some sort of crossover. Even the term crossover feels sort of artificial. It's just right. sort of almost a part of their musical output. I was wondering, too, if you guys, you know, trash hotel rooms and uh, stuff like that (laughs) when you're out on tour. (laughs) 
Unfortunately, no. I mean, we always joke about it, but usually we're so tired. (laughs) By the time we like drive somewhere and unload, and these keyboards are really heavy, and so to drag all that stuff around is exhausting. Yeah. So we we had a pillow fight once, but that was about it. (laughs) That's awesome. And it's an all girl band, so. Oh wow! (laughs) It's a girl band. Yeah. So um, do you like? Where would you like to go now? We have we have heard some very cool stuff, and I know you wanted to talk about opera specifically. Mm-hmm. So sure, yeah. Well, maybe we could play a little bit from my first opera, which is called "Song from the Uproar," which is relevant to Houston because it will be coming to Houston in March um, for a performance with Decamera on March twentieth. Oh wow! I'll just talk a little bit about the work. So. Song from the Uproar, I wrote it in 2012, and it premiered here in New York at a a theater called The Kitchen Mm -hmm. in a production produced by Beth Morrison Projects. Song from the Uproar is based on the life and writings of the early 20th century explorer Isabel Eberhardt. She was born in 1877 in Geneva, and at a very young age, when she was about 19 or 20, moved to North Africa by herself. Then she led this very operatic life. She dressed as a man— she converted to Islam uh, and joined this sect that typically excluded women, but they accepted her as a man. Wow. Um, she would ride around on horseback. She would get drunk a lot. She did a lot of drugs. She fell in love with an Algerian soldier. And this whole time, you know, she spent seven years in Africa, and this whole time she was writing. So she was she wrote a bunch of short stories, a couple novels, and five volumes of a journal. So uh, in 1904... When she was 27 years old, a big flash flood came through the town where she was living and basically destroyed most of the town, and she was killed in that flash flood. Oh, wow. And her writing was sort of washed away in the water. And so her husband had to come and pull the pages out of the water, and that became the basis of the libretto for this opera. Wow. That yeah. is so dramatic. Yeah. What a I don't story. even have to write a note. It's already dramatic. <laughs> it's, like, it's so romantic. You see him pulling the pages out of the water. No. They're... Yeah. And they <sighs> dried them off in these urns. So what's attractive to me about the story is that it's fragments. Literally, it's fragments of paper. I mean, a lot of the... We don't have com- a complete narrative of her life. Mm-hmm. And so at a time when... Because of Facebook and technology, we're so, we know seem to know everything about everybody else, and every single second of our day is documented uh, and cataloged. We don't know that much about what Isabel Eberhard's day to day life was like. So, mm-hmm. as a composer, it's really liberating, and then I can sort of just imagine what was going on in her mind. And we will never really ever know, but it just gives me freedom to sort of go crazy creatively. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's hear some. Sure. So this. This section is called This World Within Me is Too Small. And I should also just give a little more background about what the piece actually is. It's not a traditional opera in that it's not scored for huge orchestra and a million soloists. It's really just one main singer, um, the mezzo-soprano Abigail Fisher, who you'll hear on this recording, mm-hmm. accompanied by five chorus members, so five additional singers who also sort of sing from her point of view. Mm-hmm. And the pit orchestra is really just a five-piece band. It's now called Now Ensemble. And their instrumentation is flute, clarinet, piano, electric guitar, and double bass. And there's also a lot of electronics and sort of effects going on. So it's called This World Within Me is Too Small. And it's Isabel uh, preparing to leave for North Africa for the first time. So she, most of her family died within three years of each other. 
So she's obviously very depressed and felt like she had nothing. She was very poor and made the decision just to leave it all behind and go on this grand adventure. Wow, okay. And I should also say that the text is written by um, Royce Vavrick, who is my librettist and dear friend. Okay. sort of juxtaposition of the of the old and new and I was wondering because the operatic voice is it's like it's so impressive it's such a but it's so sort of alien I think mm-hmm. to to <laughs> a lot of people it's such a sort of um old art form is that mm-hmm. is that like wanting to make that juxtaposition part of what draws you to that using an operatic voice as opposed to like a like a chorus or something like that yeah, uh, it's an interesting thing, and you know, and it's something that I sometimes, to be honest, just struggle with in in working with operatic voices because they're trained to project to the end of a huge hall, and so that and there's lots of vibrato, and and there's th- a lot of things that make text hard to understand and make them sound sort of unnatural. And again, I sort of part of me loves just that ritual and the strangeness of it, mm-hmm. you know, of hearing a, a, an amazing singer at the Met or working with an amazing singer like Abby Fisher, but. I have been playing around, you know, with using things like asking singers to not use as much vibrato or placing them in interesting parts of their range, cutting the opera-ness of it a little bit consciously. <laughs> but, and sometimes playing that up, like sometimes just letting them wail in, in like this really sort of, you know, beautiful part of their range too. Uh-huh. So yeah, I kind of, I, I go back and forth. I don't really have a definitive way that I feel about the operatic voice. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. I love it and sometimes... um 
Sometimes I don't as much, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) But working with singers like Abby are a dream because she's so flexible and so smart that I could explain to her the dramatic intention of the character and say, well, here, you know, your husband has just left you and you're really depressed and you just, you have like an arm injury and how would you sing in this situation? You know, and she can sort of deliver it. So I try to get get through to singers and communicate to them through the character. I know you're working on uh, Breaking the Waves. Mm-hmm. Are, there, are there sort of some uh, different things that you're doing in that that you're willing to talk about? Sure. Well, Breaking the Waves is a huge project. Anyone who's seen that film by Lars von Trier that this is based on, every, every, people who have seen it I usually have this very, like, strong reaction. <laughs> it's a very strong film. It's a very controversial film. Mm-hmm. But I am just loving it. I think that there's such depth to all the characters presented in this film. And so musically, that allows me tremendous freedom to just to explore their psychology and to create music that it's not as simple as like, okay, this character is happy. I'm going to write some happy music. But to undermine that and to have like a lot of different layers going on because the psychological complexity of what's going on in that their mind at that moment is so rich. So it's just leading me to creative places. It's leading me to things that I would never have tried if this were just an orchestra piece or mm-hmm. a string quartet. It's really exciting. It's it's unusual, isn't it, for for the, to be commissioned to make an opera based on a film? I'm not sure I've ever heard of that, and I, I'm like clearly not an expert, but... It's actually... So the thing about opera is that even throughout history, composers have often adapted a story into an opera. So I think that that is much more common than uh, creating an original story uh-huh. for an opera. So even these, all these famous operas, you know, Madame Butterfly, La Boheme, Carmen, I mean, these were all plays or short stories before they were operas. And now mm-hmm. we just, the operas are so much more famous that we just think of them as operas. So for composers today, you know, film is available. And so that is just another natural sort of source of inspiration and of, of plots. And I think if film had been around when, when Puccini or Verdi were around, they would have been adapting films as well. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of composers adapting films. So Kevin Putz just adapted the film Silent Night uh, into a, an opera that won the Pulitzer Prize. Oh, wow. He's also making an opera of the Manchurian Candidate. So there's a lot of adaptation happening right now. David Little's first opera, or sorry, first sort of huge opera, Dog Days, was based on a film that was based on a short story. Um <laughs> So and it helps just as because opera is so massive and there's all these different moving parts that it helps to have that story in in place that you know is strong and you know works. Mm-hmm. So why don't we listen to another track from Song from the Uproar? So this is again another track from the opera, um, but a very different track. I'm going to listen to the the last track of the opera, and I'm just going to give away the ending. <laughs> and hopefully, everyone in Houston will still want to come see this in person. Um, but so in the end, as I mentioned, Isabel Eberhard drowns. And for her, though, death was not, was not the end. It was not something to be feared. It was not something to despair over. Um, and part of this was just her having this rough life that led to her really not being afraid of much. And part of it was her, um, the Muslim religion that taught her not to be afraid of death. And so I just took that as my starting point when writing her sort of death scene. And it's actually the most ecstatic, hopeful moment of the opera. And she sings, it's also the only part that has a really direct quote from her journals, 
um, which I'll just recite. It's super short. I know we're running out of time, but um, she says, Here where footprints erase the graves, a tranquil heart is mine. Here where footprints erase the graves, these hours are no more than moments of light in this blanket of blazing stars. powerful nice. <laughs> it's so stark and all of the different components they sort of speaking of lots of moving parts like there are so many they, they seem to be so disparate but they're all somehow working together mm-hmm. I can't wait to see it <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be in Houston in, in March yes okay mm-hmm. I'll bring my um, new Victoire CD to you when it's when, I'm, I'm assuming you're coming with the opera and I'll uh, yep I get, mm-hmm. I get you to sign it awesome that okay, would be cool. great <laughs> all right so we've taken a look at a bunch of your work which is great and obviously happening right now and we've talked about some other great composers and musicians that are working right now what is the bad side like are you are you seeing anything that's going on in music now that you really don't like and that you hope will go away mm-hmm well, not really like stylistically. I mean, I'm sort of open to anything and I feel like there's just such an abundance of stuff happening that it's not like there's a dominant genre that I really don't like. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wish that streaming would go away, <laughs> to be uh. honest, um, which is a whole a subject for a whole nother radio show. But um, what, for what I'm doing, which again, Borders is obviously classical experimental and uses all these unattractive words, you know, we you see just a, such a dip in revenue that really delays things. So, you know, and so it has a very, streaming has had a very real, very negative impact on my ability to make art, which is why I'm sort of, it's been on my mind a lot. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, you know, I feel like I think the trend of having less money is a bad one too. <laughs> and um, would... 
love to see composers be able to be a little more stable because I do think that does have a big impact on the art. You know, when you're working for very little or nothing, it really crunches your ideas and your creative space. And mm-hmm. so I would hate to, for us to get to a point where people are just taking fewer risks and being less sort of wild with their imagination because they're so concerned about money or time and, and, and those things. And like our we our record label, we just asked them to pull all of our stuff off of Spotify. Just <laughs> like Taylor people, Swift. Just like Taylor Swift. <laughs> yep. And that was really inspiring when she did that. And actually, you know, it was seeing Spotify's reaction to her pulling her stuff off made me pull my stuff off of Spotify because they were so nasty and so just sort of acted like it's inevitable. Everyone's going to be streaming everything. Well, people are not going to be streaming Taylor Swift for a really long time yeah. through that in that way. So yeah, yeah. And I'm, that's sort of an extreme. I don't mean to be negative at all, you know, but again, it has been something on my mind and I'm really happy to see artists like Taylor Swift and like a million other people who are, who are acting in this way. Yeah, and I guess it's a bit short-sighted of us as consumers of music to think, oh, we've got this free service, you know, but the thing is that, yeah, we're not paying for, for the music up front, but we're also not investing in new music being made in the future mm-hmm. so we're kind of robbing ourselves a little short we hope that we are not robbing you Miss Benzoli <laughs> because your music is awesome and I thank you so much for being on the show it was great to meet you okay thanks for having me great to meet you too all right, everybody, that does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. For more Classroom, go to houstonpublicmedia.org backslash classroom. Find links there to everything you ever wanted that's Classical Classroom related, including the myriad ways to listen to us uh, and our social media links. We both tweet and tumble. Uh, you can also email me at dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org. Thanks today to audio producer Todd Tisk Tisk Holslander for making audio magic. Thanks to program director Sinjin Flynn for being a close talker. Thanks very much to Missy Mazzoli for taking time out of her busy schedule to be on the show. Thanks to me for saying words. And mostly, of course, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>